0: to John chapter 14, John chapter 14, a very precious part of God's word to the life of the believer, on the subject, I will come again. You know, there's a little chorus that uh, people sang a long, long time ago. In fact, I think we sang it on Senior Saints Day. And it's based on verse 2 of this text, and it's a simple one. I'm on my way up there to my father's house, to my father's house, to my father's house. I'm on my way up there to my father's house, and there'll be peace, peace, in my father's house. Okay, you ready? I'm on my way up there in my father's house to my father's house to my father's house i'm on my way up there to my father's house there'll be peace, peace. My father's house. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that one day we are going up there and we'll be with our Lord forever. We know that your word teaches that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When we think of the moments just before Christ went to the cross, the anxiety in the hearts of those disciples, the fear of his leaving them, and when we realize that he told them on that occasion that he would come again and receive them unto himself. Those words are just important to us as they were to them. And I pray, Lord, that they would comfort our hearts to know that Jesus is going to come back. He is going to take us unto himself. We are going to be with him forever. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not where thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also, and from henceforth you know him and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been such a long time with you? And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, The works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. You know, in the Great Commission, Jesus said that we were to make disciples of all nations, and we were baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and that we were to teach them to observe all the things which Christ commanded. I believe you'll find, if you're careful in your Bible study, that the main issues of what Christ commanded that are involved in discipleship are recorded in these few chapters in John. It's amazing what our Lord taught there that's so vital and important in becoming a disciple of Christ. We're going to look tonight here about this issue of his second coming, and the first thing... In verse 1 to 6, we have the promise of a place. I believe that heaven is a place. The Bible teaches it. There are several things I want you to learn from this passage of Scripture tonight. Number one is the Bible teaches that the promise of a place gives peace to our hearts. Verse 1, nothing will so settle your heart. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Believe what? Believe that I'm going to prepare a place for you? You know, the word heaven is used 718 times in the Bible. And all the time, both Old Testament and New, dealing with the place God dwells and where his people will be, it describes it in terms of a place. There's a place. But according to our Lord, this is the answer to troubled hearts. In verse 27, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. In chapter 16, verse 33, he said, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, including waiting in line for gas. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You know the thing that really stopped me short in just looking at this for my own life is that there's really no need, people, for us to be troubled at any time. To be disturbed about anything, the Bible teaches that the promise of a place in heaven gives peace to your heart. Now, if you're restless and you're troubled and you're deeply disturbed, the message you need is that Jesus is coming back. That's what it says. That's the message you need. Are you all stirred up about something? You're worried? Listen, I got so many things in my mind right now. I need this message. You need that message. You want to have peace? You want to get rid of that disturbance? then start thinking about the place Jesus has prepared for you. You see, we soon forget that. It goes out of our mind, and we get bogged down by all the things we're going, going on in our lives, whether at home, sicknesses we have, problems at work. Listen, get those out of your mind, and remember that Jesus is coming back for you. He really is. Man, there's no peace like that. That's real peace, even in the midst of storm, to know that everything's all right. Jesus knows what he's doing, and one day soon, he's coming back. And it looks like it's getting closer every minute. You know, I don't believe that the signs that are predicted in the Scripture have to take place before the rapture. But I want to tell you, I'm leaning more that way. The way things are happening, I'm leaning more that way to believe that any moment now, Jesus Christ is going to come back. Hey, that's great. Wouldn't it be great if it was tonight? Boy, it sure would. There's a lot of things I've got to do tomorrow. I'd just soon not. But as no cop-out people, I believe that we really ought to believe that Jesus is preparing a place for us. And we're going to be with him. And that's going to bring peace to your troubled heart. The second thing I learned here, oh, and by the way, don't forget 1 Thessalonians 4. When it tells us about the Lord coming back, it tells us to comfort one another with these words. Is somebody distressed near you that you know? The Bible teaches you how to comfort them to comfort them with the good news that Jesus Christ is coming back again. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Secondly, this promise of a place involved and involves preparation by Christ, according to verse 2. It really struck me, and I'm sure you've heard before by different others speaking on this, if you've heard John 14, that it's interesting that God took seven days, or six really, seventh day he rested six days to make all of heaven and earth and everything that is in them. But Christ says, and the text would reveal, that he is preparing a place until the time that he comes back again. He's continually doing it. I wonder what that place looks like. Well, we already know a little bit about it. I believe that he is referring to the New Jerusalem. Some don't. I believe he is. The New Jerusalem is clearly described in Revelation 21 and 22. And all of its beauty, I'm sure, the way John was expressing it in his language at his time, for God took him in the spirit to actually see it in the future, but John was merely expressing it in the best way he knew how, and yet his words were inadequate. Christ is preparing a place for us, and remember that he's God Almighty. It's amazing to realize that. Now, we read in verse 2, he says, "...in my Father's house..." are many mansions. The word mansion is simply dwelling places or abiding places. I like the little word many. That means there's lots of room there. Many dwelling places. God's not going to run out. There's one for you. There's one for me. Everyone is going to be included who believes in the Lord Jesus. But I thought about this little phrase, my father's house, and I wondered, in the Old Testament, was it true of the Jews that they knew that God had a house and a place somewhere? Was Jesus telling them anything that was new or different? I don't think so. He was reminding them of that which the Old Testament taught. I found scores of passages, some of which are more familiar to you than others, but like Psalm 23, 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And old Solomon, when he dedicated the temple over there in 1 Kings 8, He told the people, listen, this is beautiful, this is fantastic, but I want to tell you, there's another place where the Father is dwelling that's not limited to this place. Yes, there is a Father's house. There's an actual place where the Father dwells and the Bible teaches that Christians are going to be there someday. And I believe that. Third, in terms of the promise of a place, and wonderfully so, it includes his presence forever. It includes his presence forever, forever. Verse 3, Jesus said, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. That's a great verse to memorize. A couple of things there. Number one, his return is predicted. No question about it. He said, I will come again, which means his own veracity is at stake. Was he telling the truth? I will come again. Frequently people on prophecy mention that all prophecy would break down if Jesus Christ in any sense was not telling the truth. All of the great predictions of the Old Testament, as it were, are now culminated in one statement by our Lord to his disciples before he went to the cross. He reassured them that everything it said was true. I will come again a second time. Did you know the whole doctrine of the second coming of Christ is built on that phrase? I will come again. Christ predicted his return. Now, I don't know what you believe that Jesus said was right. I hope you believe everything he said was right. Maybe you believe that he saved you from sin. You believe that your sins have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. You believe you have eternal life. And certainly you ought to believe his words, I will come again. The thing that struck, struck my mind again this week was how important the testimony of Christ is to my confidence that that's really going to happen. Jesus said it. It wasn't just said about him, although there is much about him. But Jesus, my Lord and Savior, says, I will come again. And everything you believe is based upon the truthfulness and the character of Jesus Christ. He's coming back. And we ought to hold that dear. We ought never to let those words leave our ears. I will come again. Nothing could be more reassuring to a group of men who were facing the issues of cro- the cross and his departure. I'm going to come back. And it reminds me in Acts 1.11 when he did ascend into heaven, the angel said to the disciple, this same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go. And I believe that was on the mind and heart of the Apostle John when he concluded the revelation. He who was there and heard Jesus say, I will come again. He told us that the Lord is going to come quickly, and he ended his book with a prayer. He said, even so, come, Lord Jesus. I wonder if you have ever looked at that as the example for all believers everywhere as to what our hearts ought to really desire. John, at the close of his life, had one prayer in his lips. Even so, come Lord Jesus. He wanted that more than anything. In 2 Timothy 4, 8, Paul said that there is a crown promised to those who love his appearing, who are looking forward to Jesus coming back. John, in 1 John 2, said that some Christians at His coming will be taken by surprise, and will be embarrassed or ashamed, as it's translated. They'll have cause for embarrassment. Why? Because they're not ready for his appearing. Oh, I believe that our salvation is secure in Christ. But I've often wondered, what is that embarrassment going to be? Some will shrink back from him at his coming, be taken by surprise that Jesus would fulfill what he promised. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Does it mean that to you? This includes the promise of his presence. Secondly, first was his return is predicted. Secondly, the Bible teaches that he's going to receive us unto himself, his receiving us unto himself. And there's a very precious word here in the Greek language, verse 3. I will come again and receive you unto myself. The word receive is a compound word, one meaning to take or receive, and the other a little preposition alongside of. That really thrills me. Jesus Christ is going to take me, and he's going to take you, if you're a believer, alongside of himself, and he's going to be with us forever. Alongside of him. And I found this usage very precious again as I turned over to the Olivet Discourse. Will you take your Bible? Turn, please, to Matthew chapter 24. I found the same word in an interesting passage by way of application to all of us. Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse. I can hardly wait to preach tomorrow morning. Now, I know it's tonight, but I can hardly wait. I'm going down to one of the uh, highfalutin city clubs tomorrow, and they asked me about six months ago to give me a title, and so I gave them the title, The Signs of the Times. And uh, I'm going to preach about prophecy to these people tomorrow. They don't know what they're getting into, into, I probably will never get a chance to go back, but I figure we might as well give them both barrels. And I'm anxious to get down there and talk to them about the signs of the time. We're going to preach from Matthew 24. But just a little neat note for you who know Christ. In Matthew 24, verse 36, he says, Of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And then you remember the story. He illustrated it by the flood. Now, according to verse 39, they didn't know until the flood came and took them all away. Now, those who were taken away were obviously taken into judgment. And it's interesting that the Greek word there, and you'll pardon me for referring to it, but it's important, is not the word to take alongside of when Jesus said, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. It is not that word. This word take is used when when people are taken in judgment. And so he said, the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Now look at verse 40. Then shall two be in the field. The one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill. The one shall be taken and the other left. What's the word taken there? It's the word over in John 14, 3. Will be taken alongside of. Now, if you're following, if you're a student of prophecy, then you know Matthew 24 and 25 is about the tribulation period. It's about Jews and the tribulation. And it's speaking about the judgment of God in the tribulation and liking it to the flood. Now, Noah and his sons and their wives went into the ark before the flood came. Perhaps a picture of the rapture of the church of Jesus Christ who won't experience judgment on earth. But the flood came and took them all away, namely in judgment. Now the question is, when two are in the field, one is taken. Are they taken in judgment and one left to go into the millennium? Or does it mean taken to be with the Lord and one left to go into the judgment which takes them away? I don't know what the full meaning of it is, to tell you the truth. It's a much debated subject. But I think there's a key in the very words that are used in the Greek language. They're not the same. When the flood took them away, it was taken judgment. But when the two are in the field, one taken, it's the word to take alongside of. And that's what Jesus said in John 14, 3, I'll come again and take you alongside of myself. So I believe by application, verse 40 and 41 refers to right now, before the rapture, Two will be in the field. Two will be working, grinding at the mill, but one will be taken alongside of Jesus, and one will be left to face the judgment of the flood in the future, the judgment of the tribulation which reminds me of this, that those words in John 14, 3, I'll take you alongside of myself, as beautiful as they are, as wonderful in terms of assuring us of his presence, there's also an awesome note there that if you aren't ready to go, brother, there's no time for you to reevaluate it when he comes. Two are in the field and one is taken alongside of him and one is left. And I believe we need to understand the urgency of that. If you don't know in your heart right now that if you would die and you would be with Christ in heaven, you don't have that assurance. Listen, do not accept the devil's lie, which I hear so much that I've got plenty of time. The only time you have is now. Procrastination is a dangerous sin. Don't put off what you know is a necessity. When Christ comes, he comes, and it's too late. I've often dreamed from time to time, especially when I'm preaching on prophecy, about what would happen if the rapture happened while we were preaching in a service. I sure hope none of you are left, but I'll tell you what comes to my mind. If you're left, I'll tell you, you've got an enormous debt here to pay. You really do. And if I were you, if I were you, I'd consider getting involved somewhere else. And I don't worry about it because I know the Antichrist has got to pay for it. He and his crowd. Listen, I want you to know that if the rapture happens tonight, there isn't any time for you to think about being with Christ in heaven. There's no time at all. I will come again and take you alongside of myself. How fast will he do that? I believe the Bible indicates in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and 52. The Bible says, Behold, I'll show you a mystery. We shall all be changed in a moment and in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. The moment is the word atom. That small, divisible element, the atom, and the twinkling of an eye, the fastest human reaction known. In other words, it's going to be mighty fast. There's no time for us to evaluate whether we want to be with Jesus or not. You know, I believe this has implications to those of us who know Christ in terms of our witness. I don't believe that we should badger people into Christ. I don't believe that we should be so domineering and salesmanlike and Madison Avenue approach that we just talk anybody into Christ at any time and force them to receive what we offer. But I want to tell you, your belief in the imminent return of Christ does affect your evangelism. I will come again and receive you unto myself and he will be snatching us away violently by force because in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, the Bible says that we're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and the word is usually used to seize or to snatch away violently by force. The whole doctrine of the rapture comes from that because in the Latin translation of those words caught up, in the Latin version of the Bible, it is rapturo, from which we get rapture, violent, immediate, snatching away with no time to evaluate as to whether or not you're going. I will come again and receive you unto myself. That's what the Bible predicts. Back to John 14. The second coming of Christ, the promise of a place, also demands a path that leads there. Verses 4 to 6. It demands a path that leads there. First of all, notice in verse 5 the usual problem that men have. It was expressed by Thomas. Thomas said unto him, Lord, we know not where thou goest, and how can we know the way? That's the usual problem. How can a man get to that place that Jesus has prepared? How can we know the way? And secondly, I believe when our Lord answered, he told us simply that his own person, the person of Jesus Christ is absolutely sufficient in three important areas. To answer that question, how can we know the way? What is the way? I don't want you to treat lightly verse 6. I believe that some of the greatest theology of the Bible is nestled in verse 6. I believe that Christ told us that his person was absolutely sufficient. He in and of himself was sufficient in three important areas. Number one, involving the method. I am the way. Now that's the simplest thing that we understand from that. That is the method by which I am going to be in heaven someday is through the person of Jesus Christ. As to method, he is the way. It does not say in the Greek text that he is a way to heaven. He is the way, meaning the only one, there isn't any other There are many examples of being narrow-minded in which one would rather be narrow-minded than broad-minded. But so often people will say, but I believe if you're, you're open to this, all religions of the world will eventually get to heaven. Aren't they trying to do the best they can? Aren't they sincere? Won't everybody eventually make it? The answer is no. On the basis of logic alone, nobody can make it by violating the laws of the God who made them. God said the only way is through his Son, Jesus Christ. And you can be sincerely wrong, very dedicated, very sincere, very good in terms of outward appearance and works, and yet Christ is the only way. There isn't any other way. And in that, Christians must remain narrow-minded. Jesus is the way. Jesus even said, you remember, in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, that there are two ways, a broad way and many people going on it, and there's a narrow way that's hard to get into, and not very many people are going that way. Christ is the only way. It's so simple that a child can receive it. And yet I have found that Christians are being broken down continually by articles, by magazines, TV programs, all kinds of things, to get to feeling that somehow, in the end, God would excuse the people who have not come through the way and would somehow let everyone who's been sincere go to heaven. I heard that from a man, read it, what he said, and I couldn't hardly believe it was the man himself saying it. But the devil is trying to get Christians to get off this. You see, if you believe that he's the only way, if he's the only method, then that affects your evangelism also. It really affects it. The second thing that I believe is important in terms of the person of Christ involves the message. Christ said, I am the truth, and I believe that the particular truth involved is the doctrine of Christ in the book of John, namely that he is God, come in the flesh, that he and the Father are one, that he is the Savior who will die for us and the only sufficient one. The correct message is also important in terms of how sufficient Christ is and in terms of the place called heaven. He is the truth. Colossians 2, 3 says that in him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do you know that our Christian school system is built upon that fact? We don't have Christian schools because we think that the public schools are going to pot, even though in many ways they are. That isn't the reason. If you think that's the reason, then you better forget it. The reason we have Christian schools is because we believe that in Jesus Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I don't believe that we teach the Bible and a lot of different other subjects, and the Bible is one among many. I believe that all truth is God's truth, every bit of it. And that in Jesus Christ is everything that we could possibly desire in the way of wisdom and knowledge. All the wonderful treasures, the jewels of knowledge and understanding, they're all hid in the person of Christ. Are you sure you understand this message here? Jesus said, I am the truth, the sum total, the body of all that which is truth. Whether you're talking about science or history, sociology, whatever you're talking about, Jesus is the truth. And all truth is in the Scripture. Jesus said in John 17, 17, Thy word is truth. There's a third important area here about the person of Christ, and that involves the motive. He said, I am the life, the particular kind of life, namely eternal life. And the whole message of the Christian and his evangelism, our whole message to a world that needs him is that he is the life. It is not wrong to give that motive. Someone has said there are two reasons why men will do anything. Profit or loss. Gain or fear of loss are the two basic motives of all men. And our Lord taught that this is exactly what is involved in the gospel. It's either receive eternal life and tremendous gain or it's to receive eternal damnation and tremendous loss. The motive is important. Now, why am I telling you that? Because I see in evangelism wrong motives. It is not the Christian message that we are trying to help sick people to have more peace and love and joy in their life, even though Christ will give that through the continuing ministry of the Holy Spirit as we apply the Word. But that is not the real motive in evangelism. The motive is eternal life with eternal consequences. And unless we believe it, we'll be lost forever. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? It's very important. Now, secondly, in verses 7 to 12, first was the promise of a place. Secondly, we've got the promise of power, almost beyond our wildest imagination. Because Christ summarized this section by saying, Greater works, verse 12, greater works than these shall he do. The one who believes on him is going to do greater works than Jesus Christ himself ever did. What is the meaning of that? First of all, in looking at this promise of power, there are three things upon which it's based. Number one, it is based on the revelation of the Father in Jesus there is no power for us unless we understand that the Father is revealed in Jesus. He is in him, and Jesus is in the Father. All the attributes of God the Father are Christ; They belong to him. And in a mysterious sense in which none of us can put into a test tube and see, the Father and the Son are one in essence, substance, and being. To see Jesus was to see the Father. That's quite a statement. If you looked at Jesus Christ in the flesh, the Bible says that all the fullness of God was dwelling in him in bodily form. Everything you need to understand about God was in the person of Jesus Christ. That's quite a statement. That's why Philip said, show us the Father, we'll be happy. I just want to know God in my life. Jesus said, have I been so long time with you and you don't know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I know of no doctrine that so deeply affects those who are on the borderline of Christianity than the fact that God is both Father and Son and Holy Spirit, that all three of them are God. All three of them have the same attributes and abilities, and yet they are separate in personality and function. The triunity of God is very important. You see, that's very important to me because the Bible teaches that God is in my life. All the fullness of God dwell in Christ bodily. And the Bible teaches that now God is in my life and the person of the, of the Holy Spirit. So in terms of power, it is based on the revelation that the Father is in Jesus, that he was God, and therefore with the power of God, he was able to do those things. Secondly, it's also based on a recognition of his works and his words. It's based on a recognition of his works and his words verse 10 and 11 Jesus said do you believe that I'm in the father and the father in me well the words that I speak I'm not speaking of myself the father that dwells in me he does the works believe me that I'm in the father and the father in me or else believe me for the very works sake the point is simple no one could have done what Jesus did unless he were god now mind you there was al- there's always been the problem of demonic manifestation of miracles there has always been the problem of charlatans trying to perform the same thing Jesus did but in scope in extensiveness in the totality of what Jesus did no one has ever duplicated in the history of the world including the Apostles who had somewhat of the same power no one John said if all the signs and miracles that Jesus did were recorded the world could not contain the books Do you believe the Gospels when it says on one occasion that the multitudes who brought their sick and disabled to Jesus, that every last one of them was healed? We only have a few instances of healing in the Bible that Jesus did, and yet there are little statements along the way that show us that he healed scores and scores and scores of people. Nobody was able to do the scope and the supernatural character of the totality of his miracles, except God in human form, namely Jesus. No one, which makes his remark in verse 12 all the more amazing. In what sense then can those of us who believe in Christ do greater works than he? And that's the third thing about this promise of power. It's based on our relationship to Jesus Christ. The text says in verse 12, He that believeth on me. It is faith alone in Christ that results in the greater works. In other words, I have a promise here in this text that's based upon my position. If I believe in Christ, I can do greater works than Jesus. Now, greater in what sense? Certainly not greater in supernatural character. Certainly not greater in the sense of healing. What man alive, be he apostle or other, who had the gift of healing... What man alive could have ever claimed that he did more than Jesus? It isn't greater in that sense. In what sense is it greater? I believe that what Jesus is speaking about, he expands on in the same section, and that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the believers in terms of the extensiveness and scope of the believer's ministry in winning others to Jesus Christ For Christ never in all of his life won people to himself that believers have in church history won to Jesus Christ. Did you know that? What our Lord is talking about is the witness of the believer, and that's why there's so much discussion here about the Holy Spirit's work in believers' lives. Christ did many miracles, but few believed. The sum total of all those believed, how many were there? What about the disciples themselves? Some argue as to whether they ever believed until after Pentecost. Who knows? But very few believed, yet through his children by faith, through the body of Christ, the church, hundreds, thousands, millions have come to know Jesus Christ over all the nations of the world, and the greater works are being accomplished every day. That is what I believe is the meaning of that term. We have tremendous power, people. You know, Jesus said, because I go to my Father, verse 12, you will do this. The point is, he goes to the Father and then the Holy Spirit comes. Indwelling people, which he never did in all the history of the Old Testament, indwelling them permanently, abiding in them forever, and producing power through their life that will result in belief. No more priests to go through. No more prophets receiving direct revelation and telling the people what to do. Now every believer a priest Every believer a prophet in that sense, declaring God's message in the power of the Holy Spirit. I wonder, do you believe that for yourself? Acts 1.8 says, But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you'll be witnesses unto me, both in Judea and in all Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, Judea, all Judea, and Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Tremendous promise. Do you believe that God's given you power like that? Do you believe God's given you power to do greater works than Jesus did? Now, what are you doing about it? The power of the Holy Spirit is a tremendous promise, and it lies reticent in the heart of every believer. It's resident there, and he's dwelling there, and he's got all the power in the world that you need for witness. The Bible says about those early believers, even when their leaders were in jail, that they met together and prayed. And when they prayed, they prayed for boldness. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spake the word with boldness. And with great power, they gave witness of the resurrection. If there is one great lack in your life and in mine, it is our lack of confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit to believe that God Almighty is indwelling us and producing his power. And closely related to that is the third promise here in verse 13 and 14, and that's the promise of prayer. Very closely related to it. Again, we're talking about the principles that we should teach in discipleship. Our Lord's instructions were very important before he went to the cross. They are the heart of what it is to be a disciple. And involved in that is the issue of prayer, the promise of prayer, verse 13 and 14. Let's look at it carefully. Whatever you shall ask in my name, that will I do. That's related, you see, to the power issue that he just mentioned. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Three things there I want you to see. One, the pattern for prayer is specifically stated by Christ. He says, whatever you shall ask in my name. Now, I don't believe that simply means that every time you pray, you'd say, in the name of Jesus Christ. I believe it does mean that, but not merely mean that. To pray in the name of Christ is to pray upon his authority. When you have the phrase, upon the name of Jesus Christ, it deals with his authority. And again, you have to come back to state, well, who is he? What does his name mean? Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Jehovah of the Old Testament. He is God manifest in the flesh and upon the authority of that name I pray. I don't know if God will speak to your heart to that phrase as he's doing in mine but I hope that he will. That we will all sense that maybe our pattern of praying is incorrect because we are not praying upon the authority of the person of Jesus Christ. What an issue. That is the pattern of prayer. Upon his name I am to pray. Secondly, I would like you to notice the purpose of prayer according to what Jesus said. He said in verse 13 that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That's the purpose of prayer, to glorify God. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10.31 that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. Certainly in prayer, wouldn't you think? And yet as I studied that, I began to write down. It was easy because I have a prayer list. I began to write down what I was praying for. And then the little problem of introspection. Am I praying these things that the Father may be glorified in the Son? There are so many things that I want God to do, and I keep asking Him for them. And I notice many times He doesn't give them. Sometimes he waits for a long period of time, then all of a sudden he answers in a marvelous way, sometimes different than what I pray. But what is God telling us here? Motivation. Motivation. Why are you praying for what you are praying? See, this text does not say what a lot concluded to say, and that is that God will give you anything you ask for. That is not true. That isn't true of a parent who loves a child. He will not give that child everything he asks for, or he will destroy that child. Our Heavenly Father knows better than that, and He knows all the things we have need of before we ask Him. That is not what it's saying. It's dealing with purpose and motivation, that everything I'm praying for, I desire that the Father would be glorified in His Son, Jesus Christ. And that eliminates half of what we pray for many times because we really are not praying that God receive the glory. Sometimes we spiritualize it so it sounds that way, but in reality, self or man or the program or something receives the glory instead of God. It's no wonder that we see little answer to prayer because of that. And the third thing, there's a wonderful promise here, though, and I take it just like it reads. Jesus said, if these things are true about motivation and the pattern, he repeats the pattern again, verse 14. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Verse 13 13 said, that will I do. I don't believe that we need to qualify the anything unless we qualify it by the following two things, praying in his name or upon his authority or from 1 John 5, 13 and 14, praying according to his will. That's it, friends. You don't need to qualify it in any other way. If you ask anything in his name, he says, I will do it. Matthew 21, 22 says, All things if you believe, you will receive it. Jesus said later in John 16, verse 24, Hitherto you've asked nothing in my name, ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. You know nothing satisfies or brings greater joy to a Christian than see his prayers answered. Have you noticed that? And yet if you've got a prayer list and you've been praying a long time, you've got all these things listed, and you've got the date of answer over here, and there's nothing down there in terms of answer, you know, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Huh? It gets a little discouraging, a little frustrating. Now, what a lot of people do instead of facing that, we stop praying. Instead of understanding the principles of prayer and what God is really promising, Christ says he will do it. Do you believe that he will? Anything, regardless of what it is, according to his will, many things check off right there. In his name or upon his authority, some things check off there. To give the Father glory in the Son, some things check off there. But if those things are right, there isn't anything that you and I ask of God that he won't do. Which causes me to say this, God, give me the proper heart and motivation towards you. God help me to be straight in my motives to know exactly where my heart is in terms of glorifying you because the power, what God promises is enormous. There's no limitation to it. And it's fantastic. And what I've usually found is is when all that is straight, your motivation is correct, what will happen is that you'll kick yourself in the seat of the pants for not believing that God could do more. He will give you exactly what you ask. So many times God has meted out to me exactly the measure of my faith. And that's the problem, the measure of my faith. I didn't believe anymore. This is a fantastic thing, people. If I could get you all excited tonight about prayer, it'd be worth it all. To begin to believe that God could do exceeding abundantly above all that you and I could ask or think according to the power that is working in us. Believe it. That God answers prayer. I believe it from the very miracles that happened in our church life just this past week. Miracles happened this week the result of prayer. I believe some more can happen this week. Do you? Listen, there's no end to it, people. Let's go to prayer. Let's believe in the power of God, all based upon the fact we're going to be with him soon. Won't that be great? We're going to be with Jesus. Let's occupy until he comes. And let's pray now. God, we thank you for your word and for the way it builds up our hearts and equips us for our ministries as believers. Lord, I thank you that one day you're going to come back and and take us alongside of yourself. Father, I confess that the world is so distracting, so many pressures, problems, views, philosophies that are continuing to pull our hearts away from the hope that we have in Jesus. Thank you how the word brings us back, and we renew our minds in it, and we find that peace again that passes all understanding. Our hearts are no longer troubled because we know that Jesus knows all about it, that one day he's going to call us home to be with him. God, we thank you for that blessed hope of our salvation. And, Lord, we thank you, too, that you promised us power. Father, I think how weak is my faith in you, how futile my efforts in trying to serve you when you have promised such tremendous power that the Holy Spirit of God would be sent as the other comforter to equip the believers so that the extensiveness and scope of their ministry and reaching others would be far greater than even Jesus, our Savior. We're amazed at that. But we see that church history has recorded the truthfulness of that. And God, we pray that it will not stop with this group of people, that each of us might be concerned about reaching our world of influence, the people that we know, that we might recognize that God's power is able to do more than we could ever dream. And God teaches the power of prayer. Oh, Father, I would pray that you'd lay upon all of our hearts right now our need of prayer. We can't operate without you. And you told us if we would pray to glorify you and the Son, if we would pray in your name and according to your will that you'd do whatever we ask. You never qualified to do it in any other way, no matter how small it might be to others. No matter how great and impossible a task it might seem, you promise promised to do it when our motivation is right. God, stir us to prayer. May we face our great sin of prayerlessness and be willing to fall down before you in dependency upon what you're able to do through us. We thank you in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.